On today's More Than a Test, I welcome Tom Vander Ark. Uh, Tom Vander Ark is the CEO of Getting Smart. Uh, they help design schools and innovations and solutions. He's also been the executive director of education for the Gates Foundation. He's been a superintendent. He's been an entrepreneur. And he is the endless optimist. No matter how many times I try to take this conversation to a little dark place, he really believes that this is the moment. Education is about to change. He shares some successes, a lot of failure, and just really leads us on a great conversation. Thanks for being here on More Than a Test. Hey, Tom, thanks for being here. Hey, it's great to be with you. Okay, so right before we got started, I really oddly asked you if you're a Hamilton fan. And the reason I asked is because there's a song in Hamilton where they talk about how like he writes like he's running out of time and like uh, how much he writes and things like that. And I was trying to do research for this podcast and you have so many books, public, I mean, over 50 books, publications. I have to know, how do you do it all? I discovered in seventh grade that I have to write to learn. And so writing is really how I process the world and how I discover what I, I think I know. So I'm, I'm a big fan of writing to learn. It all starts with reading, right? It, it really does. And it, it's, it's been really fun kind of exploring all of your writing in the last couple of weeks. Um, you have a blog on Ed Week that is really inspirational, some things in Forbes. It's, it has been really great. But when you go to your bio, the first thing it says is that you're the CEO of Getting Smart. So we just tell our listeners, what is Getting Smart? Um, and give us a little information there. Yeah, Getting Smart's a 15-year-old um, advocacy and advisory organization. My wife and daughter actually started it uh, 15 years ago, and, and they decided to let me hang out there. Um, we advocate for innovations in learning. Um, we're just super optimistic about um, next-gen ed tech and the new learning models that uh, that it enables. And um, our, our big programs right now are, um, uh, we always have a campaign running on emerging issues. Our current one is called New Pathways. And we're really excited about um, helping American secondary schools develop new pathways linked to opportunity um, pathways that develop agency and purpose and entrepreneurial mindset and, and connect kids to opportunity. And we just launched a big uh, micro school grant program. This is our, our first big step into, into grant making, which is a fun return on a, a prior career of mine. And so we're, we're helping other people create exciting new schools. Okay, let's dive in on a couple of things. You said the new pathways program. I recently hosted the super, the commissioner of schools from Rhode Island, and one of the things that she was talking about was that their high schools had all these students doing work after school and getting no credit for it, and they were doing all these really incredible things, but it just didn't count their academic programs, and they were trying to make changes to that. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about when we're talking about new pathways? Well, it includes that we we call that unbundled learning, uh, which is learning that can happen anytime, anywhere, um, and often outside of school. It, it's interesting, Laura, that uh, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent, but when you, when you ask anybody to recall the most valuable learning experiences that they've had, the ones that really shaped who they are, the ones that they remember 20 years later, they almost always were out of school. They were extracurricular, they were uh, sports, they were clubs, or they were art, they were drama, they were uh, music. It, I think John Maida found this in his search for, for deeper learning that uh, it, it often happens in those out of school spaces, the spaces that we don't often very support very well and they don't count. There's no way to capture and communicate that really powerful learning that, that happens in those spaces. And so we're one part of our new pathways strand is called credentialing. And that is an effort to try to, help capture and communicate learning wherever it happens, and then equip learners to tell their story, to, to be able to share their, their new uh, capabilities, and then help educators sort of bundle experiences, rich learning experiences into pathways linked to opportunity and communicate it through credentialing. I really love the way you have like this holistic approach that's not just like a checkbox of yes, they went to work, but instead like let's capture and honor what they've done and also incorporate it into the other things they need to learn because they have this skill that is so valuable to the other things they're learning. 
Um, I have to ask, cause you said it now, you know, most people's most like inspirational learning moments were out of the classroom. Tell me one of yours. What was it out of the classroom inspirational learning moment that changed you? Oh, Laura, it, it's, um, I, I know you're north of Boulder and I guess the experience that changed my life was in Estes Park. Um, just a few minutes north of you, Rocky Mountain National Park. I, I was a pretty good student without trying in, in high school, but I was mostly bored and mischievous. And what really changed my life was a, a teacher gave me the opportunity to create and lead an outdoor leadership uh, program during intercession uh, between the two semesters of my senior year. And it, I've just never enjoyed anything more in my life. The ability to create learning experiences for other people and to help them grow in ways that they couldn't have imagined um, was just super rewarding. Kind of my first big experience in, in experiential education and, and one of the really big inspirations for um, the, the 50 years since then. I don't think you can get farther out of the classroom than Estes Park and being up in Rocky Mountain National Park. So you really took it to the next level. I appreciate that. The first thing you said about getting smart, though, is that it's about innovation. And, and I think I heard the word optimism. Um, and it's interesting because I'm, I'm a really big Larry Cuban fan and I've been like rereading a lot of his books around technology. And one of the things that like, like stands out to me is he said that so often educators are having innovations and new ideas hurled at them. Yeah. And I can just picture this teacher standing at a blackboard with like someone actually throwing like textbook sized innovations at them. And I'm just curious, like how, what, what is giving you that optimism and, and why, you know, how do you contribute without hurling, I guess. Oh, there's like six really big book length questions in there. Um, I love it. So let, let me, um, let me start with a bummer here. I, I just wrote a, a paper for Hoover that was a 40 year retrospective on ed tech. And it was part of a series looking at, you know, the 40 years since, um, a nation at risk. And my paper looked at ed tech and, and its relationship to ed reform. And, and here's the disappointing thing. It didn't work very well. Like that first and second generation of ed tech, um, lots of surprising anecdotes, um, lots of cool uh, schools were, were created. But when you look at the, 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 the top line results, it's really hard to find evidence that we move the needle at scale, particularly for kids that need it most. And, and this was a, this is probably my toughest writing assignment because I'm, I'm sort of a tech optimist, always have been. And this, I really had to sit with these results um, for the last uh, five months. And uh, I've done a lot of soul searching about it. And I, 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 you know, I think there's reasons that it didn't work very well. There's an access gap that uh, we, we were really slow to get all kids access to good technology. Then during the pandemic, we found out the access gap is really at home, not just at school. And so the access gap was much bigger than we thought. There's a deployment gap where um, in, in some of those sessions where I was hurled at teachers, um, sort of crammed into systems, it, it just wasn't done very well. And as a result, wasn't used very well. And so we'd say really weak fidelity um, implementation. In a few places, you had this beautiful mixture of um, supportive leadership, promoting a positive vision, and then encouraging invitational leadership. Uh, Rebecca Middles on, on my team has been a leader in this space for, for 20 years of, of creating an invitational system where teachers and schools come to a change frame when and how they're ready. And so in, in the same way you think about personalized learning, it's personalized change, where you try to equip people to come to the change sort of when and how uh, they're ready. And, and so I think using these more enlightened leadership strategies um, and, and uh, creating portfolios of options, not just for kids, but for educators, and then really supporting high fidelity use of high quality products. Um, I, I think of, of Amira has been an example of a kind of a third gen product that is 
just much, much better and different than the second gen products that, that we've been cramming into schools for the last 15 years, um, that I'm really optimistic about those sort of deployments. So new learning models co-created with educators, often co-created with learners using high quality products um, and with really good access, both at, at school and at home. So much of what you said resonates with so many things that I'm thinking. So I'm trying to figure out like, where do I pull, right? The first thing that you said about, um, you know, like the hurling and the third gen and what I would, what I really appreciated about what you said about Amira, it reminded me of something that a story that Mark often tells. Mark worked at Renaissance Learning for a very long time. And he was talking to a teacher about one of his products at Renaissance Learning. And this teacher was telling him like, it's great. It's great. You know, whatever, you know, like I'm happy to use it. But then she finally looked at him and said, but could you just give me a product that's actually going to work for my kids and teach them and like help them read better? Like the product's fine, but like nobody's reading better. And that was where Amira like started was this one woman was willing to say like, yeah, okay, but it's not really helping. Right. Um, but the other thing that you said that I kind of want to push back on is you said, you know, like this, this lovely moment where like the teachers are ready for the change and, and, and it kind of comes all together and I heard a lovely story from Texas recently about a district that really invested in, in teacher um, development and helping paraprofessionals become teachers because they had like 14% of their classrooms didn't have teachers. And that's a really good example of that. But in a lot of places, I feel like the question that what, what, what I want to ask is, but can the kids wait? Can the kids wait for everyone to be ready for that, that moment <laughs> where everyone's ready for change? What do you think about that? Yeah, no, that's it's that that's the innovation question, right? You, the, the interesting thing about innovations and in learning, whether it's a product or a model, is that it actually creates inequity inside a system because some people have access to it and some people don't. And so this idea of innovating for equity is really a complicated paradox. And it, what it suggests is that as soon as we've created or discovered uh, a, a learning model that works better, we have a new obligation as leaders to uh, give everybody access to that model. And so this is really, I think, the, the, the new system's challenge is how you both um, create opportunities to innovate and then very quickly scale for equity. And then, as you said, uh, as we discussed before, do it in a way that invites teachers into the process as opposed to cramming a model down um, on them. And that is really complicated, particularly in a, in a big system. Yeah. Let me ask you to reflect on something that I, I know about. So at Amira, to your point about fidelity of usage, this is a huge question for us. What we know at Amira is the kids who read with Amira 30 minutes a week will shoot, see huge growth. Huge, it right. seems like not that much, but it's really hard to get teachers to do it. So we did an interview. We did a survey and interviews with hundreds of teachers last year. And we asked one question is if we wanted to see more usage of Amira in your schools, what would be the best way to fix it? And, and to see more of this. And we offered options like, you know, more training, more tech help, more like support, more whatever, all these different things. Overwhelmingly, they told us, make it a district mandate. If you want me to do it, tell, make my superintendent tell me to do it. So tell me what, tell me about that. What, 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 how you react to that. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a tough observation. So let me, um, let me come at this in a, in a different way. Um, we have, we've reached a point that I'm, I'm very optimistic about with this new set of tools and new learning models. However, they're, they're really complicated. It's complicated to design a, a, an effective learning model, particularly if it's, we're talking K-12, right? A sequence of learning experiences that are highly effective for all kids. Um, and then to build a tech stack uh, to, to support that. And, and I would argue there's very few leadership teams in America that are really skilled at building highly effective learning models and aligned uh, tech stack and, and then creating professional learning opportunities for teachers around both the learning model and the, and the tool set. And for this reason, I think it's really important for schools to work in networks. I wrote a, a book about this called um, Better Together five years ago with my friends at New Tech Network. And it argued that the promise of new learning models is really exciting, but they're really complicated. And as a result, most schools 
with, with a few exceptions of highly capable innovation schools should operate inside a network, either a network that they join or a network that they create so that they can share the, the benefits of learning together around a powerful set of tools. So there's a couple different ways that you can create that. You can create a school district can be a network of, of highly aligned schools to the common system, or you can create voluntary networks like New Tech Network where schools can join other schools around the country and use a common learning model and a common platform. So I think in one of those two ways of either creating a district that's a, an aligned network or telling schools that they can join networks of schools with learning models that, uh, that, that reflect their needs and interests, that you can get to the point where you have high fidelity implementation around a sophisticated learning model. So where possible, if, if that can be invitationals, right? So that, that group teacher, groups of teachers join a model um, that reflects them and their kids and their values, that's great. Um, we have a lot of listeners who are educators and I'm sure a network sounds great. So tell me, that, tell me a little bit more about these benefits that come from networks because in the long list of things that educators need to do, it's often inside of their classrooms. So tell me what you learned through that study that, that you saw as benefits for, from joining something like this. Well, uh, Denver's actually an interesting example. You know, for 15 years, it was the, it was the best example in the country of a, of a school district promoting networks of schools. Um, it was kind of controversial because in a lot of cases they were charter networks, uh, but they were really good charter networks like DSST, um, Rocky Mountain Prep. Uh, but there are also some really good networks inside the, uh, the district innovation networks like uh, the Beacon Network that included a middle school that my wife attended, Grant Beacon. Um, and, and that principal was allowed to create a, a new network around the success that um, that he had created. So I, I think a, a, a big district like um, like Denver, uh, before that it was Houston, before that it was Boston, um, can create a portfolio model where groups of schools work together um, in, in either to create new schools or to improve existing schools in, in really effective ways. <laughs> I, mean, I, I hear what you're saying that like it's the districts can do it and it's effective, but like what's effective? Like what are the people experiencing as a part of this network that feels powerful to you? Yeah, they're, they're experiencing um, what we used to call a curriculum, um, a, 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 a series of learning experiences for kids that are highly effective um, supported by um, really good tools um, that are integrated with a common ass assessment strategy, a, a common um, data system that allows you to uh, collect and share data about what's working and what's not. I feel like what I'm hearing you say is also like a collective experience, right? That if we're all doing this together, there's this opportunity for us to share. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but th this is like, I think we pivoted really during the pandemic in, in sort of a, un, um, uh, in a difficult way. We, we pivoted from, I, I think the end of education as the individual practitioner to teaching in teams on, you know, using smart tools on shared platforms. And I think it's a given today that this is a, this is a team sport. It's a collective effort. It's, um, and it requires us to work together um, in teams using shared tools in a way that isn't really part of our history. Yeah, I think I think you're I think you're right. That was definitely my experience in a school here in Boulder, Colorado. That my very individualistic teachers, who all taught their own core subject, all of a sudden, like they were putting on the jersey and come into the late night sessions to figure out this out together. So I think I think you're totally right. Let me make a, a shout out for two groups that are doing this nationally. Um, uh, here in Phoenix, um, ASU runs Next Education Workforce. They have they have about a hundred 
national partners working on teaching in teams and, 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 and just reimagining teacher roles, often including um, new education roles from outside the building as part of the, the teaching team. On the East Coast, um, Public Impact created Opportunity Culture, opportunityculture.org, and, and they're working with several hundred districts around the country on a teaching and teams model empowering teacher leaders uh, really to support groups of teachers. And, and so I think this concept of working together on a common platform, using shared tools, shared learning experiences is, um, is a really important part of our future. Yeah, and I, I think that you're really hitting on something that we've learned at Amira. We we launched this thing called Champions this year, where people are in charge of their schools, Amira. But like we bring them to these national meetings, and the community they build really matters, and they and they really grow. Tom, I'm noticing something about you. So I tried really hard to kind of like hurl some negativity your way. I was like, you know, teachers are too busy for networks, and you know, we send all these bad innovations to schools, and they have to deal with it. And no matter what I say, you have like light up with, but this is what we can do with this. And the innovations are great. And we're on this new, like after 50 years of failing, this is the time we're going to succeed um, with ed tech. So tell me, like, where does your optimism come from? This time's really going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can do this. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm, it's interesting, like given 40 years of challenge, I, I have just never been more excited about the opportunity going forward, um, not not only for us as educators, but this um, this generation. Reed Huffman called young people in high school and college Generation AI. This group of young people have the greatest value creation opportunity in in human history. There's just never. There's never. They're stepping into the opportunity to make a bigger difference in the world than they ever imagined possible. And so I guess with that, that's helping people see that sense of possibility um, is what my life is all about. Um, and, and so you can tell I'm, I, I am more um, I'm more optimistic than ever because I think the opportunity set just keeps getting uh, better and better every month. I feel like you just gave me chills. I'm going to write that down later that like we're stepping into an opportunity we could have never foreseen. I feel like I've heard a lot of people say things about AI, but that is probably the most beautiful I've heard maybe ever. This is probably why you write. <laughs> this is like the central premise of my life right now is that I want more kids to do work that matters. And I think that's the most important thing in education right now is to help more kids do more work that matters. And by that, I mean work that they care about. You, you, you at, uh, at Amira, I think you appreciate voice and choice in a way that other people don't. And from early age, you're trying to develop the sense of agency. I think learner agency is more important than ever. And inviting young people as often as possible to co-create experiences that are important to them and important to their community, right? So that they know, they know enough about themselves as a learner, their strengths, interests, and values, and they know enough about the world and what's happening in the world and where and how to make a difference that the work at that intersection of it's important to me and it's important to people that I care about in my community and then adding to that, that now today I can take on that work with a powerful set of tools that will help me create, code, visualize, um, share, uh, analyze in, in ways that I never could have. That's amazing, right? And so that that's what I'm really excited about in terms of high school and college of, of, of creating environments that are alive with that sense of possibility. Um, I, I really love that. And I think you're, I think you're dead on. I think that there's all of a sudden a lot of barriers are down that maybe kids felt like they had because there's this new access. And, and I think that it's a really important message. We're talking a lot about people and about children. Um, but I would love to talk a little bit about products. I know you're an Amira fan, but let's talk about some of the other things that when you look at AI and what it's doing in education, 
you're excited despite what you know about the last 50 years. Tell me, tell me what else is exciting you. There's a lot of people that are really excited about AI as a, as a smart tutor. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be valuable. Um, you guys, I think, know that better than anybody. Um, I'm, I'm even more excited about um, AI as a path guide. So not just for around a particular learning experience, but hel- helping kids imagine possible futures um, and make smart decisions towards a, a possible future. Um, in, I'll give you a couple of California examples. In Da Vinci schools, um, they they have been using um, GPT-4 in uh, in a project authoring project called Project Leo, projectleo.org. And the 1,300 kids in those high schools are creating projects that matter to them and to a, um, a, a community client. And so this is a great example of using AI in the in the creation sense, um, in, in an entrepreneurial way, to frame up problems uh, and to design solutions that that neither the kid or the company could could have imagined. So I love that. At the higher ed level, um, Ethan Mullock at at Wharton is just reinventing entrepreneurship education uh, and using AI to completely reimagine the the um, how impact organizations are launched and and how they're um, developed. So check out his work on Substack. Wait, but let's use let's use that Da Vinci example really quickly, if you don't mind. I want to kind of go back to it because I I want to be specific for people who don't understand. Um, again, we have lots of educators who listen. So it, at these schools, can you give me an example of a problem that a student has has kind of gone at with with their community partner? So. They're, they they use the, the this this ikigai frame of helping kids get you know get to understand who they are what they're good at what they're interested in um, how they can monetize that how they can make a living and and what the world needs and what the world needs at, at Da Vinci is often de- defined by a community partner and so that community partner might. Um, it might be a nonprofit working on uh, beach cleanup in, in El Segundo, right? And so the, the student w- would work with that community partner and, and would, would begin by using um, Gen AI for brainstorming uh, possible solutions. They'd actually probably start by, by doing a query uh, uh, to, to build knowledge that would scaffold them up around the solution set. And then then they would start to use Gen AI to uh, to um, develop possible solutions to that, and then they would begin iterating with their community partner, and then they would step into the creation phase where they could actually mock up and prototype a solution that might might be a new mobile app that they would create that um, that would help solve the problem. So. It's that sort of community connected, authentic learning that's important to the kid, important to the community. It's entrepreneurial, it's design thinking. Yeah, and it's giving them a start. I think we hear this all the time from people who are really excited about AI is like, you don't have to have an expert across the globe to brainstorm anymore. Like there's this opportunity here to like get some ideas on paper, put something out and, and, and then iterate from there with either that community partner or even more AI, depending on the situation. So I think, I think it's a really good example. Just um, down the beach from there is um, in, in El Cajon, which is in East San Diego County, there's Cajon Valley schools and they, they have the best K-8 career exploration system in the world. They immerse young people into... Um, into professions around different um, aptitudes. And it's a really 54 deep immersive experiences between K and eight. And um, I'll I'll give you, I was in uh, a couple of those classrooms a few weeks ago and they had kindergartners, first graders um, doing an education um, immersion. And and I worked with a young lady uh, who was catting 
a the, carrying the design to a classroom and a school, sort of reimagining what her learning environment could look like. So this is a first grader sort of reimagining how school could work for her, the, the equipment, the, the experiences, the people that would be involved. And then th this unit was thick. It, 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 it was really a, an, they met teachers at their school and other schools. And then they concluded this immersion by a reflective activity that's where they asked themselves, um, how, how did that experience becoming a teacher or a learning designer, how did that line up with my strengths, interests, and values? And they have these reflective conversations from kindergarten to eighth grade. I mean, it's really, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. And then I went, they're starting a new high school called Bostonia. And I, I visited with a lot of those kids that are using school joy to, um, to explore possible futures. And they, they can pick a career mentor um, in school joy and, and have a dialogue with um, somebody from the future of health professions. They can say, I want to, I want to talk to a Latina nurse in 2030 about what her experience is like. That is so cool. And so it's those sort of immersive possible future identity development, purpose development experiences that I'm most excited about. Okay, Tom, this is going to be the first conversation of my entire life where like I'm considered the pessimist, but I'm going to throw some, one more little negative thing at you to respond to. So a few months ago, I hosted somebody who they're all of their research is on like innovative schools and different school models. And the last question I asked him, I said, these, these all sound amazing. Just like the ones that you're talking about sound amazing. And I said, do you have kids? And he said, yeah. And I said, what kind of school do they go to? And he said, a traditional school. Like, I, like I've got the, and so I'm curious, like, why do you think it's so hard when you hear, when you hear these stories, it sounds amazing. It sounds incredible. I want to have a first grader designing her own school. That sounds fabulous. Why is it hard for us to, to necessarily like go this direction, go all in? It's yeah, it's it, because it's a big gnarly problem. It's a, it's a Gordian knot. There's a, this really powerful mixture of um, of policies and funding models um, and tradition. Tradition might be the hardest, th this collective and idealized memory of school. We all went to school and so we think we should subject our kids to the same thing. <laughs> so it, it's all of those things, real and imagined uh, barriers that make it super difficult. That's one. Um, number two, we've had, you know, until, uh, 2010, there was almost no R and D spending in education, it, it, just pitifully limited, uh, both private and public investment in R and D and for something that's maybe the second largest sector in the economy. Uh, to, to spend so little on R&D is really pathetic. And both publicly and, and privately through the growth in venture and private equity, uh, we're, we're beginning to see more investment in, in innovation. And then finally, that it's just been difficult and expensive to start new schools. I'm a huge new school advocate. I, I've, I've been part of helping to start probably 1,500 schools in the wow. 25 years. And almost all of them have been, are still very good, um, usually better than the schools that they compete with or replaced. But it was really, really hard to start all of those schools, either inside a system or as a, as a charter school. And um, I, I mostly encourage that it's becoming easier to start um, interesting new schools. We're, we're big fans of micro schools um, because it's, whether you're inside a system or outside a system, it's becoming easier and cheaper and faster to open up a new school and try a new learning model to, to grab a set of really high quality products and create a very personalized environment for six, 12, 20 kids. 
Um, that's, that's really exciting. And I think I am with you. I think that seeing something new every once in a while and seeing some new schools sprout, it's hard because we all got used to like our neighborhood school, but this idea of new things kind of coming up, it, it, it does seem like it's getting faster and easier. And I'm sure, you know, because before doing the role that you're in now, you were the executive director of education at the Gates foundation. Is that right? I was. And before that I was a public school superintendent. Okay, so I, I want to ask you about the Gates Foundation first. Um, so my uh, the chief impact officer at Amira was at the Dell Foundation, and he said someday, like somewhat wistfully, he's like, the great thing about being at a foundation is you get to make everybody happy. You're just giving up money, <laughs> and people are doing great things. Was that your experience at the Gates no. Foundation? No. What's your experience? No, it's, it's funny, Laura, that I, I remember the very first speech that I gave um, at Gates, it was to a, a fundraising conference in Seattle, and I got this huge standing ovation. And I thought, man, I was really on. I was so good today. And then people like rushed the stage, and everybody had had their hand out. And then I, I that was on day one. I learned the lesson is that you know ninety nine point nine percent of the time you say no. So as an investor, the answer is usually no. It's not yes. And and so occasionally you can. Um, help support promising dreams, but it it is it is very much the practice of of saying no more than yes. Um, and how about now at Getting Smart? When people ask for your help, I'm sure that you are often asked for all kinds of things from districts and design. Is it no? Is it yes? How how do your partnerships work now? We try to help um, as many people as we can in in a lot of different ways. Um, that um, that includes a lot, a lot of free advice. And I spend uh, my my staff would tell you I spend most of my most of my day um, trying uh, providing free advice to people and systems, um, trying to make a difference. And I love that I can do that. We also create these campaigns because our our mission is really to illuminate the path forward. And so, like the new pathways, what we're trying to do is say it's a big gnarly, complicated topic. How can we create a set of resources and experiences like conferences and webinars and stuff that help learning leaders figure out the path forward? So that's our, that's our like one to many strategy is the, the uh, campaigns. And then we do, we have a very active advisory practice where we work with schools and networks and, and districts all over the world, designing new schools and trying to help um, struggling ones get better. So it sounds like you're finding lots of ways, different ways to say yes, depending on who's asking, whether it's free advice or webinars or really getting in there with the districts. Um, if I was going to like pull a thread and say, this is the line that I see across your career, whether it was as a superintendent at the Gates Foundation or today, I, I would say that it's innovation. And I bet you would say like equitable in innovation, but innovation is, is a double-edged sword, right? Like sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not. Can you think of an innovation that you really thought was going to pan out and it didn't? <laughs> I, I've spoken a, a number of times on failure and I, I, I feel like I have a PhD in failure. <laughs> uh, I, I, I should get an honorary degree in failure. Um, man, there's, there's so many. I, I've, um, before I was a superintendent, I was an entrepreneur and I, so I started some companies, some did really well, some didn't. So I've, I've had some personal, uh, business failures as, um, as a school superintendent. Um, I, they hired me because I, I told the community that we would solve problems together, that I wouldn't tell them what the answer was, that I'd help them think about how to make it better. But by my, by my fifth year, I'd become sort of too smart for my own good. And I had decided that we were going to create a bunch of new small high schools in town. Um, and they were better, faster, cheaper than the big comprehensive school that my community wanted. And I ran a bond uh, for that and I got my butt kicked. I mean, I lost <laughs> really, really bad. <laughs> really? Yeah, because wow. we wanted football and soccer. And, um, and because I had not, created an experience where they could come to a different conclusion, right? So the big lesson there is you either have to give people what they want or you have to lead them to a new place. I mean, those are the two choices of, of a leader. And I just hadn't created enough experiences for them to change the demand curve. And 
as an investor, both in philanthropy and in venture, um, I, I made a lot of decisions that, that didn't work out as well as uh, as hoped. And so, yeah, if you're if you're interested in innovation, you will um, you will suffer and hopefully learn from all the failure that comes along with it. Right. If we're going to spotlight your failure, I'll let you go the other side, too. What's an innovation that you helped along that you're particularly proud of? I, well, I'll do, I'll do, uh, I'll do a pro and a con the, I had the good fortune to, um, you know, to, to begin working with Bill and Melinda at this amazing period in human history, right after the information age started and right after Ted Sizer had created the coalition of essential schools and, and so you had this sort of modern era of new school development emerging around Ted Sizer's principles, and you had the power of technology. And between 99 and, and about 2005, um, I, I had the opportunity to support so many extraordinary networks that started High Tech High and New Tech wow. Network and Big Picture Learning and EL Education and Ed Visions and N Visions and 50 really good charter networks. I had the chance to work with um, 100 school districts. Um, so just during this really, this, this sort of step function of opportunity um, with a really big budget and a lot of flexibility to support people doing cool stuff. The flip side of it that I was going to say, this is another sort of big failure that I think about every day is that at the same time where I'm, I'm helping to stand up, you know, this new wave of progressive education in America, I was also funding um, the policy advocacy that turned into No Child Left Behind. And I really believed, given my engineer finance brain, that if we added measurement to the system, that we could both create more progressive schools that use better information and that that would be a new formula for equity and we know that didn't work out as hoped. I mean, a bad set of 1950s psychometrics kind of in, in rigid um, accountability policy kind of swamped um, the, the progressive movement of um, education that started in, in, the, in the knots. And so that's a big, I think, a big failure that I still think a lot about. Tom, I try to bring you to the pessimist side and you go optimistic. I try to talk about your successes and you tell, tell me more about your failures. I don't know if it's just you and I, or if there's just something about you, but let me ask you for a bit of free advice for our listeners. And then we're going to move on to our five questions. We ask everybody, you know, uh, for the first time, in my opinion, as somebody who's worked my, most of my life in schools, I think we are seeing a moment where teachers are being brought into the fold a little better right? Like I think that there are now there's new groups, there's new councils that teachers can join to like help pick the products, right? And things are getting hurled a little less. You start by looking for evidence. And then second, um, try to create an opening um, for experimentation. Um, do you remember, um, I think when you're in DPS, they had the Imaginarium, Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. This is a very cool thing in Denver Public Schools where they fostered and supported teacher innovations and they encouraged teacher teams to try things and you give out a mini grant uh, to try things. And so I'm, I'm very pro um, sponsored teacher innovation pilots. Th this is different than the history that we have of everybody doing their own thing. It's like it's a collective effort that sanctions and supports teachers for trying things and then sharing the results with others. So I think it, it, particularly if you're on a, a curriculum committee like that, trying to create the opportunity to say, I want to try that. Here's how we're going to set up a, a rapid iteration cycle and then share the results with other people who are trying, trying different stuff. So tr try to be part of a, of a, of a, sort of an agile environment that's um, that's iterating and experimenting and sharing. I think you'd be so proud of this district, this tiny, tiny district. I want to say they were Indiana that I met with once. They were trying to decide on a new literacy curriculum. They talked all of their teachers into splitting class by class. So like every, every, they had two schools, 
and they had two classes in every school per grade. So every first grade, one class got one curriculum and they, they were willing to try it. And it was really cool. And, and the teachers were so behind the new curriculum because they got to see it for themselves, right? They got to try it with their kids. Um, I don't know if most districts have the resources, time, ability, teachers who are willing to do it, but it was one of those moments where I was like, yeah, go teachers. <laughs> it was cool. All right, we're running low on time. And this has been such a lovely conversation about equity and innovation and all the ways that you are bringing optimism despite my pessimism. <laughs> and I really appreciate it. But there are five questions we ask every guest. And so I'm going to ask you. Uh, the, the podcast is called More Than a Test. And we have a reason we call it that. But every guest hears something different. When you heard More Than a Test, what did you think of? Performance assessment. <laughs> I, this, this is one thing. Um, you, you talked to Ron Berger from EL Education. Yeah, a few I love, weeks ago. I love Ron. Don't we all? <laughs> Ron, Ron, Ron taught us about performance assessment, and um, Ron also, at with Harvard, created this um, models of excellence. So his notion is both you have to give pictures of kids. Uh, you have to give kids a picture of what good looks like, and then you you have to be clear uh, about how you assess. Um, their work or invite them to assess work against that model of, of excellence. So I'm, I'm a big fan of performance assessment, particularly kids able to assess their own work and, and their peers work. That's awesome. I will tell you after that conversation, I started keeping my, my three-year-old twins, some of their artwork, you know, for their little portfolio. Yeah. And my husband's like, yeah. it's all just trash, but sure. <laughs> But I'm keeping it now because Ron Berger told me I should, so I will. Um, okay, my next question is to tell us a lit moment from your life. And what I mean by that is a time of you in a book that's like your happy place or changed you or changed your direction in life, you in a book. So here's a, here's a different answer. Um, I, when I became a superintendent, I found out that we didn't have a learning culture. And so I announced in like my second month, we're going to start every meeting with a book review. We're going to learn together first. It's the most important thing that we can do is create a culture of learning together. And so every month you're going to bring something that you read that changed your life personally or professionally, and you're going to tell us why. And that flip to inviting other people to share what they're reading and why it's important and what it had to do with the work they were trying to do together. It, it, it was the most pivotal um, cultural thing that, that we did. Oh, that's really lovely. Um, tell me about a piece of tech. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Uh, tell me about a piece of technology you love. I, I have kind of a love-hate um, relationship with technology, but I, um, I'm a um, Strava addict. I, I ran every day for 40 years, and, and after my knees gave out, I, I cycle every day. And I'm connected with a couple thousand runners and riders around the world in this community of exercise addicts. And I just completely love it. I sort of wake up uh, to it and it's a big part of my first hour and a half. I've had that recommended. I'm a huge runner. I also have a Peloton. I'm way into that, but I've never really gone to the community thing, but I think between this and your- You can link your Peloton to your Strava. Oh man, I'm going to have to do it. Are you a Peloton rider? I, it's right. It's right over here in my office. I, I actually did a ride in in uh, Switzerland this morning, and then it showed up on Strava. So. Oh my gosh! I'm okay. I might have to actually look it up. Who's your favorite Peloton instructor? I I actually ditched instructors, and I only do scenic rides. Oh really? I'm see. I love the messages, but I'll try a I'll try a scenic ride, and I'll try Strava, Strava just because you told me to. Try try scenic rides, and you, you can go all over the world. It's very cool. That is really cool. All right. The best advice you've ever been given. I was a young executive at a public company in Denver, growing like a rocket ship. And my boss um, forced me to join an education nonprofit, uh, chair the Denver Chamber Education Committee, um, and join Leadership Denver. And the combination of those three things just completely changed my life. And I very quickly realized that I, I'm on this planet to give the gift of uh, great education. And so it was that 
boss that saw in me the opportunity to make a difference through education that um, that was really life changing. Wow, I can't even imagine our life without you in education. So what, like a what a cool thing he's done for all of us. He was a coal miner from Colorado School of Mines. So it's <laughs> wow, that's so great. I was way off path, Laura. That's amazing. That's so incredible. That it's those one. It's like those one. Those few people, right? That one person who just says, "I see you." I see you, and I know you can make a difference, and I know you want to. You may not even be able to, to express it, but yeah, those life changers, right? Yeah, that's totally true. All right, and one book you think everyone should read? Well, I I'm going to cheat here and just um, I my podcast is all about books that everybody ought to read. So I just picked a couple from the last three weeks, Gene Eddy on crisis proofing today's learners, um, Anaheim superintendent, Mike Matsuda, educating for a purposeful life. It was last week. He was amazing. Chris Unger just published, um, a revolution in education. I love that guy. Um, Elliot Washer, who started big picture, just wrote, um, learning to leave about work-based learning. Those are a couple that I've, so I, I do podcasts because I want to share good books that, you know, that people, that giants in our sector um, are, are writing. And it's just such a cool way for me to be able to learn and share what they're teaching all of us. Awesome. All right, Tom, you have broken all of my rules. I was a pessimist. You're an optimist. I ask for your success. You give me a failure. I tell you one book and you gave me six. So thank you for being here. Thank you for breaking the rules. Thank you for all of the things you contribute in writing and podcasts and speaking. It means the world. Um, and I'm so glad for that one boss who told you you, meant you belong in education because we're Thanks, so lucky Laura, to have you here. And I, I appreciate you and the Amera team, uh, what you guys are doing to change reading uh, instruction for every kid in the country. Thanks. For, I see. And then you plug my company at the end of your podcast. One more rule broken. Tom, have a great day. Thank Thanks. you so much. Ciao. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.